customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on, and we've let members of the Race Members Club set the agenda for us in this edition of the Race F1 podcast. We've got a batch of questions on all sorts of topics, many related to the first pre-season test. I'm Ed Straw and joining me with all the answers are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, hello. How are you enjoying this brief pause after the flurry of launches and the first test that seemed to mean February just went by in a flash? Yeah, it's like a step change, isn't it? It's um, and it's I don't know about where you are, but it's coincided with a change in the weather. Suddenly, um, suddenly it was spring today for for some reason. And um, it, it's just come. It's it's almost like all that stuff between Abu Dhabi and now is just some weird dream. And um, we're now preparing for the real season. But um, yeah, some still some uh, uh, unfortunate, horrible weirdness going on in the background, of course. Of course, yes. Well, I'll pick up on the more pleasant topic of the weather. It's not very springy down here. It's looking a bit gloomier. So evidently the north is is prevailing. And Scott, the point Mark makes there about all of the Abu Dhabi stuff now finally seeming to be in the past and it's getting on with the new season. It's quite fun, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think it's important that we've been able to effectively draw a line under the end of last season, finally. Um, And I think Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes played a part in that. They said that they weren't going to forgive or forget what happened in Abu Dhabi, but they were at a point now where they needed to move on and focus on 2022. So I think we can take that as sort of our cue to do the same. Um, The reason being that F122, there is a lot to be excited about. And it's really fascinating, but we just haven't really been able to fully embrace the new era and look ahead to the new era because we've been spending too much time looking back. Rightly so, because Abu Dhabi, what happened there, needed an awful lot of scrutiny. But now that Hamilton and Mercedes have basically said, okay, this is not an ideal response, but it's an acceptable response. It shows they've taken it seriously. It shows they've decided to make some changes to avoid a repeat happening we can take that as a cue to, again, not forget it happened, not pretend that it didn't happen, not to pretend that what happened was okay, but we can take that as an opportunity to say, right, here we go, let's look ahead to 2022 now. And I'm glad we are, because there is a lot to get excited about for for this season, and the first test really just sort of whetted everybody's appetite. Yeah, definitely. And now we've had cars on track for three days in Barcelona, it really feels like it's it's getting going. Before we delve into the questions mark now the dust has settled on that barcelona test obviously we had our daily podcast trying to make sense of it as we went along what are your main takeaways from the first test particularly in terms of who's looking good who's looking bad and what's still yet to be revealed all we can go on was what we've seen in terms of lap times and what tires were on and to an extent um what time of the day it was when the track was Quick is usually quick in the last hour or so, and it, it, it starts quick in the morning and then becomes slow, and then in the last hour or so, as the track cools, it becomes fast again. So you, you're sort of getting a feel of it just just in a, 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 a very broad sense. Um, and from that, uh, you would say that the Mercedes, the Red Bull, and the Ferrari look very closely matched on raw pace. However... There was all sorts of stories going around that um, some drivers are lifting off massively in the last, uh, you know, the last few hundred yards and the, the last sector, and um, there are others who who were uh, genuinely slow in the last sector but doing a good lap time because it took a lot out of the tyres in sector one and sector two, and so didn't have much traction left for the chicane. So there's a there's a bit of um, muddiness in there, but just on the raw numbers. Yeah, it looks like those three cars were the um, the class of the field. Um, we saw McLaren looking promising earlier on, um, but didn't seem to go into a different program. Also, again, all the usual caveats about fuel loads and everything like that. But um, certainly, Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari do not look slow. It's almost a bit disappointing, wasn't it, Scott? Because that's kind of the picture we might have predicted based on the prior expectations going into the test. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, it's one of those where um, you're you're hoping that it's not just going to be the usual suspects. And obviously, when there's so much change, you kind of get excited and carried away about the idea of a 2009 situation. Um, I don't know who you would peg to be the Braun Toyota Williams trio of 2022, but yeah, the first test. As as much as we can't draw too many conclusions from it, the first test absolutely suggested that it's going to be the same old protagonists at the front. And then the same absolute mess of cars fighting out in the midfield. And um, as as it's been the case for the last few years, I, I, I wonder if the question mark of 
who will have the third fastest car on any given weekend is going to be considerably bigger than who will have the fastest car. Yeah, it's possible. I'm holding out hope for Ferrari at the moment. They're the team that always look most likely to join the battle at the front. They've got no excuses not to really this year. So I'm kind of hoping maybe Ferrari can be there. I think some of the other teams that have got a bright future, McLaren, Aston Martin, etc., need a few more years before they can really be the, the outright consistent front-running forces, but Ferrari could be. We'll get a few more answers when it comes to Bahrain, though, so it'll all come out in the wash eventually. Let's dive into our questions, though. Scott, the first question will be aimed at you. It's from Michael Passingham. Why was the first test session run behind closed doors with no broadcast, presumably to spare the team's blushes, when Formula One then goes ahead and uploads all the dramatic moments to its social media anyway? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, I honestly don't know. Uh, I, I don't even know the official answer to this because it's felt like it's been a bit inconsistent. So the two of you are more than welcome to chime in on this. The, what, the one thing I would say is testing has been transformed into a much bigger and much more accessible spectacle in the last few years. It's almost been made an event in its own right. And making the first test a behind-closed-doors event again sort of generated an assumption along the lines of there'd be hardly any running as the teams got to grips with the new cars, so there was no point in televising it. But And, and then when people saw the new cars were largely running absolutely fine and then F1 made more of a song and dance about them on their own channels, they understandably questioned what was going on. Um, I'm sure part of it is that F1 loves to control its own narrative. Um, that's been super clear under Liberty Media, and sometimes I think we've all felt we're in direct competition with the co- commercial rights holder. But I think the bottom line is that, from my conversations anyway in the paddock, I got the impression that quite a lot of people felt that this was just not a broadcast-worthy event. It was never going to be just a shakedown or, what, what do they call it, a pre-season track session because they weirdly wanted to avoid calling it a test. Um I never expected each team to only do a few laps here and there because it was absolutely a test, but it was a very boring one. Tests normally are, especially when teams barely scratch the surface of performance work, and this was a particularly glorified act of correlation and validation because there was simply so much to get through because of the rule changes. Um, When I wrote a piece on how, um, you know, whether six days of the of testing were actually necessary this year with the F122 cars running so reliably in test one. But in that, I pointed out that the lap times dropped by barely half a second from day one to day three in Barcelona. And that progression is usually one or two seconds over the first test. So we we, we didn't really get anywhere close to the maximum of these cars. And look, I, I love testing and I'm not going to pretend that we didn't get anything out of it and that fans wouldn't have got something out of extra coverage. But the first day and a half in particular, was really uneventful. So if it had all the bells and whistles of a massive F1 event, I think it would have been a bit underwhelming. And I also think it probably would have been a bit too much effort for for the reward. Yeah, of course, there's a tremendous cost attached to broadcasting it live and comprehensively in the way they've done in recent years. Although I do wonder whether Bahrain played a part in it in terms of them wanting the pre-season test. Of course, Barcelona was fully behind closed doors, so you couldn't even go and watch, which you have been able to do in the past, which was a slightly strange one because there's no COVID-19 reason for that, which is what stopped it the uh, the previous year. So yeah, interesting. I think maybe they also feel that it creates a, a nice build-up into the season. You have the teaser test and then the full-on coverage of, of Bahrain. But 
judging by the reaction, I think people would rather have been able to see a little bit more just so they can get used to these new cars, if nothing else. There's big anticipation surrounding that. But yeah, certainly, as Michael passing in the question mentioned, any embarrassing moments, they were on social media anyway. Yeah, I think I'd just like to point out, like, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, patronise people who wanted to follow testing and say, oh, you wouldn't have got anything out of this anyway. Like, it's not my place to tell people what they would like or, or what they should or, or, or shouldn't get. I'm, I'm sort of rationalising it from a, I guess, a return on investment kind of position and also just on a, is it worth it? Because I just don't personally understand why there's a clamour for live coverage from from testing. I, I It just... It doesn't interest me. Like I'm, I'm a football fan, and preseason friendlies don't interest me at all. Even when it's my club playing them, that they just don't matter to me. I, I don't care until it gets, you know, proper. So there's a part of it. Like I'm not trying to be dismissive of anyone's interest at all. It, it's just to me, I, I look at it purely from a: Do I think this is worth being on TV for eight or nine hours during the day? And I don't think it was. But there was absolutely a, a silly clash between some of the messaging that was put out around why this was so secret and then the fact that F1 went ahead and then broadcast a bunch of it on their own channels in different ways anyway. Yeah, the clarity wasn't uh, wasn't tremendous. The next question, Mark, will aim at you from Henri Haler or Henry Haler. Apologies, I'm going to butcher everybody's pronunciation during this uh, this podcast. Which part of any of the new cars has surprised you the most, good or bad? Well, the thing that took most teams by surprise, and therefore us, uh, was the porpoising malaise. It, it, maybe it shouldn't have been, given that it was always a, a ground effect phenomenon back in the day. Um, and it, but in a way, it, I guess it's a testament to just how effective the various vortices are, which the teams had been creating around the floor edge. They worked so well that they were pulling the rear of the floor down too hard, as it turned out. And so we had teams gouging cutouts on the floor to release some of the downforce just to allow them to put miles on the car. And we had even Mercedes putting a, a tie rod at the back corner of the floor to keep it from being pulled down so too far. So what hadn't been realised is just how ineffective the simulation tools are in replicating this exact phenomenon. The, those tools are incredibly sophisticated, yet they can't give any representation of what happens when all the equations go crazy is that gap between the road and the car becomes tiny. It's like the aerodynamic equivalent of the the edge of a black hole when Newtonian equations start to break down. Not quite as dramatic as that, but you know what I mean. Anyway, that was a big surprise um, for everyone. I quite like that porpoising as event horizon. See if we get any spaghettification of F1 cars. That's always a that's one of my favourite terms related to to black holes. What well, you've you've gone for a kind of characteristic there, and I guess there's also the question of individual bits of the new cars. I guess the biggest surprise for me was that just there is so much diversity of of shape in the cars. There were concerns it was all going to be very very similar, but we've seen quite a few different approaches. So that's probably quite a big positive, isn't it? Not just in terms of the side pod shapes, but also the front wing approaches, etc. We've seen lots of different interpretations, which is is quite encouraging. Whether it'll last, of course, is another thing, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, that, that, that's that been so fascinating, seeing each new car come out and saying, oh, that's a bit different to the last one. Oh, and that one's different to both of them. And then, oh, that's different to all of them. And that just continued all the way for all 10 cars. So, yeah, that was that was great. I, I, I really, I've really enjoyed that aspect. Um, 
I just hope there's more than one way to skin a cat and that um, these different concepts will all remain valid. But it, it, history tells us that probably isn't what's going to happen. Yeah, and a few teams have said they feel the cars are a little bit more modular because although we talk about car concepts, the fundamental concept of all the cars is basically the same because the rules are so prescriptive, but there's just different ways you go about it. I know James Key felt that ideas might be a little bit more directly transferable because everybody's trying to create a similar kind of airflow regime. We'll start to get a bit of a feel for that in Bahrain then as the season goes on. But yeah, variation in cars is is very, very good. Anything grab your attention, Scott? I would have picked the variety of the um, the side pod designs in particular had you not sort of gone down that route purely because I think I might have even said this on the podcast before, just it's always been difficult for me to sort of not care about tech because I, I, I do find the tech side fascinating. My, just, my, my insight and understanding of it's just not high enough. Um, more just like I struggle to identify things until people point them out to me. If you or Mark said, oh, you know, this is the difference between this front wing and this front wing, I would then see it and I'd get it. Um, but it's just nice for me. Like, I, I, I like I like seeing this. I like being able to identify that there are sort of families of the same sort of design idea for the side pods. But even then within those families, teams have gone for different styles of solutions. And then the Ferrari just seems to be completely out on its own. I, I guess if I was going to arrow in on one thing, I might pick Ferrari specifically for the reason that they are, I believe anyway, from what I can see, the the outlier in terms of they, they do have a slightly wrong way of putting it, but like a totally unique uh, interpretation of the side pod regs. They've got some other interesting bits and bobs around the car and they just seem to be... Um, they just seem to be turning heads like on track and off it. And that's not a surprise in... I get what you were saying earlier, Red, about holding out hope that Ferrari will be the ones that challenge Mercedes and Red Bull. But when I start, when I saw like all the cars had been released and I saw that Ferrari stood on its own, you're kind of thinking, well, you've either got one team's got it right and nine have got it wrong, or uh, I think Ferrari might be in a bit of trouble here. But it actually sort of leans a little bit to what Mark was saying. Maybe that there are, maybe there is a few different ways to to skin a cat in these technical regulations. So it's a bit of a surprise for me to see that Ferrari's gone out on its own, um, in its own direction. And it 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 seems to work seems to work quite nicely. They they seem pretty pretty boisterous about their design philosophy and their prospects and how it's all handling. So um yeah, maybe my maybe the unkind way of putting it is that I'm surprised that Ferrari don't seem to have dropped the ball. <laughs> Well, that connects to the next question, which comes from Christian Candler, which I'm going to ask it myself. It's actually partly directed at Gary Anderson, who isn't on this episode, but he will be on our Bahrain test preview episode. So we'll revisit Would you like me question. to ask it, Ed, so it doesn't sound like you've gone insane? You can do if you like. Yeah, go, go ahead. I'm just a bit worried that you might feel like the re- listeners might feel like you've gone mad and you're just having a conversation with yourself on the podcast. So I'll, um, I can ask you... This, uh, this question, Ed. Um, it was really interesting to see Gary sound so confused about the Ferrari's aero concept on the podcast episode about the car reveal, saying that it looks like two different philosophies and cars put together. Now that it's the talk of the paddock that the Ferrari might be the team to beat, do you have a better idea how they've gotten that advantage? He, and he adds, I hope you know this isn't me questioning you, Gary, just any updated observations about the car from trackside. So, Ed, I'm guessing this is directed at you and you on behalf of Gary Anderson as you are effectively Gary's minder. 
<laughs> yes, well, I can only partly answer on, on Gary's behalf. Obviously, Gary, he's very, very good at calling it as he sees it. And he will change his position. And I think if you listen to our testing podcasts, he was conceding that the Ferrari was making some kind of sense, even though it's not completely obvious. The key is, ultimately, that the whole car does work together. I think that's what Gary was getting at, that it didn't look like it works together. The fact that it was working well on track indicates that the the kind of airflow regime of that car does seem to be connecting up quite nicely. We did see that footage of the extreme porpoising, but they weren't the only ones who were suffering with that. So we'll have to see how they how they resolve that, although it wasn't doing it all the time. So it was only in one state of running that that, that seemed to be occurring. But certainly, from what we've seen of the Ferrari, the power unit package has taken a decent step. Aerodynamically, the car is working. Whether they've actually got an advantage is another question. They are looking good, but... Right now, it's impossible to say whether they're up there with Mercedes and Red Bull or whether there's still a little bit of a, a step back. We'll start to see that more in Bahrain. And incidentally, I think Bahrain will be good for judging the power unit performance as well, although there's obviously the obfuscation caused by the different engine modes, but it's a more power-sensitive circuit than Barcelona. So as Gary said, it looks like two different philosophies. It may look like that, but evidently it is one philosophy because it's working well. We'll have to see how it evolves. But we'll get Gary to pick that up on our Bahrain testing preview episode. I hope that's a bit of a partial answer there. The next question, Scott, comes from Luca Rocco. How do teams like Alfa Romeo or Haas change their planning after such a problematic test? Do they plan an enormous mileage for the second test, hoping to have solved their issues by the time they get to Bahrain? Or do they just sacrifice some type of running, for example, race runs? Well, I'd be surprised if Haas and Alfa haven't spent time rejigging their run plans for for Bahrain. These are set a long time in advance, sometimes weeks ahead of testing. um, And they're tailored to what teams need to prioritise for various departments. But I'm sure there would have been a degree of flexibility left for the second test anyway, based on what came out of the first test. So it's, it's, this isn't as problematic as if these problems occurred on day one of a single test, uh, for example. But there, there is, they have lost a lot of time from establishing you know, aerodynamic correlations with the new aero concepts, validating engine reliability, um, whatever the teams had set aside for performance work, and obviously understanding the Pirelli tyres and the 18-inch wheels. So, of course, the other consequences on driver's seat time. I think this hits Alpha particularly hard as Valtteri Bottas is new to the team and Joe Guan Yu is an F1 rookie. They're both basically a day behind most other drivers already and it puts a bigger emphasis on Bahrain to get comfortable and well-prepared in their understanding of the car and the tyres and all of that stuff. But at least Bahrain will be more relevant so it isn't the end of the world um, it seems a guarantee that some test items will need to be sacrificed, but it's possible that they could adapt their run plan in a way that basically streamlines day one in Bahrain, and then basically day one in Bahrain is your slightly compromised hybrid of what you wanted to do in Bahrain initially plus what you didn't do in Barcelona. But if you can do that effectively, cut out a few things here and there, then you leave day two and Three to be approached in an optimal way. I think that would be a good that would be a good um, compromise. They they will need to conduct some validation work to test the solutions they've come up to come up with to their Barcelona problems. That is going to take up time, and they are behind on the serious mileage and data gathering that other teams got stuck into in Spain. So it may take a bit more time to be assured things are working properly and get down to the real stuff. This could all eat away a little bit more of the remaining time, but. I think the bottom line is that exactly how they alter their plans or, or 
rather exactly how they go about the whole Bahrain test is probably going to depend on how good a day one that they have in Bahrain. And one of the priorities will be validating any changes they've made to deal with the porpoising. Alfa Romeo had lots of problems with that. I asked Jan Monchot about this when they did their launch of the final livery on Sunday morning. And he said that probably the solution is partly in floor changes, partly in running the ride height a little bit higher. But he said, but whether it's three to five millimetres higher or 20 millimetres higher, I don't know. So validating that will be the priority before they get into the main run plan. On a similar topic, Mark, Chloe Rogers asked, how do, uh, Chloe Rogers asks, how does each team seem to be getting to grips with ground effect? And do you think McLaren's affiliation with IndyCar might aid in exploiting, in exploiting ground effect and suspension setup? It's a really interesting point, Chloe, about the IndyCar link. It's not one I'd thought of, and um, it's certainly something I'd now like to ask them. Gary Anderson did a great piece on the website about how McLaren was relying on the strength of the vortices to seal the floor without letting the floor get too close to the ground, which is where the other teams were becoming unstuck. And uh, James Key, the tech director there, said it was just a bit of a happy accident and that avoiding porpoising wasn't the thought process that behind the way they chose to do it. It was just sort of ha- happenstance. Um but there, there may be info on the aero team from cross-pollination with IndyCar. They don't use the F1 facilities to develop the IndyCar, but there could well be some crossover of thought. Uh, the teams generally had their cars working well immediately, apart from Alpha. Uh, in the, it, they all had porpoising of some sort, but it was it was under control. It's just not very nice, and it was delaying them getting into the full detail on the aero maps and things like that, which... Going back to something Scott said earlier on, it might be why we didn't see the usual um, progression of, of lap times through, you know, through the, 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 the three days. Um, so yeah, there might be quite a lot of things that they'd have expected to have sorted by now that they will be getting into um, in the opening day of Bahrain. Ed, I'm going to save you from speaking to yourself again by asking you the next question from uh, Simon T. He says he's hearing a lot about convergence of an idea as the season progresses, but is wondering how feasible that is. If, say, Mercedes' slimline design is the way forward, could the fat-bodied cars, that's his technical term, adopt that and vice versa if the opposite is true? Could we see Yorkshire puddings, that's the Ferrari, on every car? First of all, Ed, what do you think about Yorkshire puddings as a technical term for the Ferrari? And that's ideal. It describes it well. And Yorkshire puddings are a good thing. That's one for our uh, international audience there. Uh, Look it up if you're not familiar with them. But yeah, the answer to this is yes and no. And it depends what particular things we're talking about. As I mentioned earlier, there is a certain transferability of concepts, given that the, the general aero regime is not so different from car to car. However, when it comes to making changes, the key is what it's required to make the changes. So are those aspects structural, which brings in costs? Are the changes dictated by the power unit packaging, which is pretty much locked in? So you will see from car to car across the different power units that there's a certain familial resemblance in terms of where where things are, where things are narrow, where things are wide. So it's not necessarily the case that if you've got a Ferrari engine, say, that you can do the exact same shape as a Mercedes. So it all depends. And likewise, things like suspension, they can have structural impacts as well. So that that can be quite tricky to to change around if you want to switch between pull rod and push rods. I don't think we'll see people doing that this year. So 
it depends. So the simple aero surface shapes, there's more chance you can do. But then, of course, it's getting it working with the rest of the airflow regime. I think probably the side pods are an area where it's fairly ripe to see some changes just because you can change the the profile in some areas quite easily. But it'll it'll depend what works for different teams. It could be that, to use that phrase that Mark used earlier, different ways to skin a cat. And even though you've got a dramatic difference in look, they could be actually a quite similar effect. I'm interested to see what changes there are kind of at the front of the Venturis and with those fins at the front of the side pod. So probably kind of leading edge of the side pod corner could be a place where we start to see a few little tweaks here and there. I think in the wider picture, the overall convergence will take a little bit longer. I think we get to the end of this season, we will see still some pretty big shape differences. But then the, the real acid test will be next season when the cars start to reveal and whether we get that oh that's a different shape oh that's a different shape or it's all variations on the the same theme what do you think of the the timeline for things converging mark yeah i'd agree that the 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 big the big differences are baked in i, I would say really we, but we, we'll see we'll see details we'll see details around the floor edge and the the wing tips and, and the profiles of the front wings in particular and little details around the um the, the exits of the the diffusers at the back I'm, I'm sure we'll see all those usual things but yeah the big architectural things are all baked in for the season i'd say um and yeah you're right there's a there's a strong family resemblance in the cooling systems of each of the four engines obviously the the alpine one's unique to that car but if you look at the other three the mercedes one's very similar in how they have the radiators laid out we it's just in, implied from the the shape of the 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 engine cover and the side pods, but it's it's quite similar um, and uh, between each of the Mercedes powered cars and quite different from the two Honda powered cars and quite different again from the Ferrari powered cars. So um, yeah, I think that's really the main um, the, the 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 main differences between them. The the other thing that we've seen in differences is where they've. Um, Place the engine relative to the rest of the wheelbase, and the Mercedes engine cars look, on the whole, to have mounted the engine quite far back and done a short gearbox. As Ferrari have gone the other way, um, Red Bull looked to be somewhere in between. Um, there's a exception to that, and that Alfa Romeo with a Ferrari engine seem to have also gone quite far back. But it's a, it's a difficult one to judge because that's got a significantly shorter wheelbase than the other ones, but. Um, all these, all these points are um, the the sort of big uh, long lead items, so they're not going to change through the season. Yeah, I think certainly in terms of the immediate changes for the test, it's more going to be fixing the existing approaches teams have taken to make things work a little bit better than than step changes. Although there might be a few teams that have got changes they've had planned from a while ago that were in, in manufacture and signed off later that they might deploy. So that's the thing to look out for in Bahrain. This podcast is brought to you by Gran Turismo 7, available March the 4th on PS5 and PS4. Gran Turismo uses the power of the real driving simulator, which has been developed over 25 years to create the ultimate immersive experience. So whether your thing is racing, car collecting, tuning for those last crucial tenths of a second of performance, designing your livery or even photography, Gran Turismo will let you find your line. There's a wide range of game modes for everyone, including fan favourites Arcade, Driving School and GT Campaign. 
and the legendary GT Simulation mode allows you to buy and sell, tune and race your way through a solo campaign, unlocking new cars and challenges along the way. There's over 420 cars available from day one, with Gran Turismo recreating both the look and driving feel of iconic supercars. There's more than 90 tracks to race them on, including some classic circuits from GT history and a wide range of weather conditions to test your skills in. Gran Turismo really makes the most of the technology of the PS5, with adaptive triggers letting you feel the all-important variation in braking resistance and 3D audio allowing you to know exactly where your rivals are when racing wheel-to-wheel. -wheel. That, combined with the haptic feedback, means you can really feel the car under you. Internet is required for most functionality. Find your line with Gran Turismo 7. Well, Scott, inevitably there's a few Haas-related questions in the mailbag from members of the Race Members Club. Joe O'Brien says, given everything that has happened with Haas, can you think of a team with worse luck with sponsorship? And if they have to get a new driver, who will it be? Um, okay, so I remember on Friday morning at testing, heading straight for the Haas end of the paddock because I was hoping to chat to a couple of people and see if I could understand more of what was going on around obviously the fact that they stripped the cars of uh, stripped the car of the um, Uralkali branding and even though Mazepin drove in the morning the big question mark already over what would happen there and after a few minutes of waiting um, Gunter Steiner and Gene Haas actually arrived together and uh, I don't want to do either of them a disservice to say that they're just miserable looking people but obviously it had must have been a pretty fraught Thursday and they didn't exactly look that chipper arriving into the paddock at about half past eight on the Friday morning. Um, there is a lot of sympathy in the paddock, I think, towards the people of Haas, but that is directed primarily to everybody south of the owner because ultimately the team's most high-profile issues can be traced to Gene not wanting to put more money into the team itself. That's what led to the rich energy, that's what led to the rich energy deal and that's what led to the Eurokali Mazep independence. Gene's got massive resources. He could fund this team himself. He's chosen not to. So he's put Steiner and the team into a position where they do deals that other teams can avoid. So I don't think you can say Haas has been unlucky with sponsors. The people have. Absolutely. They're not responsible for this. But Haas as a team is reflective of its ownership. So Gene's made his own luck with the decisions that he's made. So it's a bit, I'm, I'm not trying to be clever with that answer. It's just, I think there's a difference between sort of un, feeling sorry for the people who have to deal with this stuff on a daily basis at Haas and thinking it's just bad luck that they've ended up with two, like, two difficult sponsorship situations in a row. That it, it isn't just luck. Um, as for who they'd, you know, what they do on the driver's side, if this goes the way it looks like it's going, my gut's telling me, Antonio Giovinazzi because I don't think the team wants to be dependent on finances but I think it wants to have a solid experienced benchmark for Mick Schumacher and someone that they can trust to do a good job so I think they're going to want someone who's got recent experience of F1 so the last year or two um, and I think it'll be someone they have to they, they can realistically get so that rules out you know, I'd put Oscar Piastri in that car. If it were up to me and I had complete freedom of choice, I, I would do that without hesitating. But they need to be 
clever about who they can actually get their hands on and stuff like this. And obviously Giovinazzi is with Ferrari, Haas's team partner. So I just think that will, I don't think it would be the most inspiring choice. And I don't think it would necessarily show that Haas has, you know, is the most ambitious of teams, but I think it would be sort of like an understandable compromise of a stopgap solution. So that that's where I would see it going. There's another question related to Haas, Mark, that I'm going to throw at you from Ben Johnson. With current world events, if Errol Carley cannot fund Haas, do you feel that Andretti Global will use the opportunity to buy the team? I don't get that sense, no. Um, as Scott was saying, um, Errol Carley is only a small bit of the Haas finances and Gene Haas is a, a multi-billionaire. And he didn't want to spend any more than the bare minimum until the new regs and the cost cap came in hence taking a pay driver, but there's no real financial pressure there now. They can comfortably manage, I think, without a pay driver. Andretti would love to buy the team, but I don't think Gene is of a mind to sell it at the moment. But maybe if they have a terrible season and he gets fed up, the Andrettis might have a better chance of buying it then. Yeah, and Michael Andretti said he's had a few goes at trying to buy Haas. Obviously, this is a big ambition for Michael Andretti to get an F1 team, but it's been turned away. I think last he said is, well, we'll just leave it that if they want to sell, they'll get in touch with us. But Scott, just to digress a little bit, where are we at with Andretti? Because they're being quite vocal about it now. As we understand it, the FIA isn't particularly opening the process for new teams. So what exactly is going on here and how seriously should we take Andretti, which on paper sounds like just the sort of team F1 should need? Yeah, I think um, I think it's reasonable to take the Andretti bid seriously. Like It sounds like they've got proper backing around the project, good good solid um, resources, um, a, a decent initial plan of how they do it in terms of having a base in the US and the UK with a Renault engine supply deal, um, more than enough money to pay $200 million as an anti-dilution fund that would be split across the existing 10 teams and then pay all that they'd need to pay to get the team set up properly thereafter. But there's there's something about it isn't convincing F1, the FIA or most of the other teams. Um, And there'll be an element of selfishness there, absolutely. And protection of their own interests but the the argument basically comes down to whether you think Andretti would add something to the championship and boost revenues overall or whether you have any doubt whatsoever whatsoever that Andretti might be underestimating the challenge and would dilute the grid in the short term by taking a percentage of F1's revenue away from all the other teams, not be successful, and then want to quit in a few years because it's not going as well as they want. That That's the one view. Then the other view is it's Andretti. Of course, they're going to do it properly. They want to be around for a long time, and they've got a massive presence in North America, so they'd help F1 do a lot more business out there that would then more than offset the amount that they take away from teams' revenue. So the idea there being that, yes, they would mean that all the teams get a slightly smaller percentage of F1's revenues, but they would grow the pot overall. So it would be a smaller percentage of a much bigger pot and therefore a net gain for all the other teams. I don't know where I fit into that divide because I just don't know enough about exactly who the people are behind behind the bids 
what sort of timeline they're thinking in terms of success, how much they're willing to spend, all of that. I just know that it's more than just saying we want to enter an F1 team, we've got X hundred million. I think there needs to be a bit more convincing going on. And it doesn't sound like Andretti has quite won over everyone that it needs to win over. And they seem to be going public with it in an attempt to put some pressure on, as Toto Wolf said, if you're going to do a startup team, you're probably talking about a billion to to set up the facilities. If you're going to be doing that, that's a huge operation. So for me, the key is just how much resources are there and what are the actual plans? How many of the the gaps still need to be filled in? If it could be done, and if Andretti has the money to go with the credibility it already has because it's Andretti, then it's certainly appealing. And I think F1's reticence, it's easy just to put that down to the fact they don't want to dilute things for the existing 10 teams I think there's probably also some reason for that but we just don't know enough what's your feeling on it Mark um yeah there's there's, there's too much that's um behind closed doors to really have an uh, opinion on it I'd love to see Andretti come in um I'd love to see um an expanded um, American presence in the pit lane and I think it would be great for F1, but what the actual business nitty gritty of it is, I, I don't know enough. And it's it's something that is um, uh, de- deliberately concealed. Uh, so, yeah, I I couldn't really um, give a a, a very um, considered analysis on uh, the, the likelihood or whether it should or it shouldn't. But it, it would be great if it could be made possible. It would be great to see. The one thing we would say is it's right to have a high bar in terms of being able to to get in. So you don't want to let in a team that has, I don't know, a quarter of the funding for it and assume it'll get the rest of it. You need to be pretty sure that it's it's going to work. And I just hope that F1 and Andretti try and work together over the coming months to to try and make something work if it if it's if it's workable, because that would be great for Formula One. Scott, do you want to team me up with the next question? One final question to you from Barry Staley. He's got a question that's not directly related to testing or car launches, um, but he believes it is very relevant to the new Formula One rules. What has each team had to do, particularly with reference to staff numbers, in order to work within the current budget cap? Surely the larger teams that had to spend significantly over the budget cap would have had to have laid off a significant number of workers or redeploy them in other areas. Commentary on this human aspect of the budget cap Seems to be very limited, but Barry has picked a good time to ask this question, Ed, because you are Lord Emperor of the financial regulations, are you not? Well, I've read them lots of times. Doesn't necessarily mean I understand them fully, but yeah, I'd like to think I've got a, a basic grasp of them. But yeah, the main thing is, as it mentions in the question, it's the big teams that it impacts. A lot of the teams it hasn't had a huge impact on. Some of those who are a little bit close to the line, a little bit of reshuffling around, but nothing major the reason that the human that the human aspect hasn't been talked about a huge amount is as far as i can tell there hasn't actually been a huge amount of disruption because we have seen teams being quite good at moving people around and onto different projects to ensure that they are gainfully employed plus there will be a little bit of natural wastage and turnover whereby you can cut back your headcount a little bit just by not replacing people who who move on and with teams of this size there'll be a reasonable turnover so for example Ferrari have moved a number of people onto Haas. Haas building up, Ferrari needing to move a few people elsewhere. So they've done that. And obviously Ferrari has a whole car company it can put people into. A similar thing we've seen with with Mercedes in that they've got other projects going on. The America's Cup project, a few people have been put on to, to working on that. So 
again, still gainfully employed on other technology projects. Red Bull obviously have a powertrains company there building up, so there's the chance to move a few people onto there. It has had a big impact, though, in terms of the structures of the teams. They are, for the biggest ones, a bit smaller, and it's been a, a process to work towards that. And obviously that process started even before last year when the cost cap was first in play. They had a bit of a glide path that meant they didn't have to hit it immediately at the start of last year. Now, I'm not sure whether there have been any people who've specifically lost their job because of it, because we haven't heard of anyone specifically, but there may be people who who have been or feel that they, they've been moved on or not renewed because of it. So it is possible there is some human cost, but for the most part, the big teams, and it's Ferrari, Red Bull and Mercedes are the key ones. They all seem to have been quite engaged in making sure that things are done in the right way to ensure people are, are still gainfully employed. But it, it's something that's having a big impact because it also impacts the way you develop the cars, the way you've approached building the cars, the way you run the cars, the damage approach etc etc so it's it's a profound change and I don't think we've necessarily had the chance to see the full impact it's going to take a little bit of time to really understand that but for the most part I think the human cost has been limited although do get in touch if if uh, if anybody knows of people who've who've suffered because of this but it's one of those things that's for the wider stability and good of F1 and the hope is that while some of the bigger teams have got a bit smaller, there's an incentive for the smaller teams to scale up. So the the total number of jobs available in F1 should be similar, if not a little bit more, given that you've got seven teams that to a greater or lesser extent have had to increase in size a little bit. Well, the next question, Scott, this this kind of starts to skirt around the, the, the Hass issue again, but slightly different. Petri Simonen says the horrible Russian invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent reaction to it have resulted in, among other things, the cancellation of the Russian Grand Prix. I was hoping to hear the F1 team's thoughts on what they'd like to see replace the race and what they think is most likely. Will we just have one less race on the calendar, which is not necessarily a bad thing? I've heard rumours that the Turkish Grand Prix might end up replacing the cancelled race. And while that race has been good in recent years, I cannot but hope for a finished Grand Prix at the new Kimuring track supposedly a grade one track that could host f1 with some modifications it'd be great to see a country where f1 is a major sport but it's not raced before scott plenty to delve into there and you're the closest thing we've got to a finland specialist on the podcast given uh given your swedish base <laughs> yeah um there is a lot to get into there um so for starters the calendar is set to remain at 23 races there have been multiple venues linked with replacing russia um uh, I'm blank in the top of my head. The, the race was, it was either due to precede Singapore and Japan or it was in that tr- middle of that triple header. I can't remember exactly what it was. Was it before Singapore, then then Japan, Russia? Yeah, so another Asian event in China or Malaysia has been mooted to to, to fill in there and then have a, an Asian, a, a free race Asian leg, um, effectively. Um, but Portugal has been named as a potential European alternative. So I don't, know for certain if f1's got a uh, preferred route there yet but the turkish grand prix isn't believed to be an option um i've heard it linked as well but i don't believe it is in contention i don't think istanbul made a particularly great impression on f1 um when it came back onto the calendar for a couple of years 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic um it hosted a couple of good races and the weather capable of mixing it up at that time of the year as we've seen at both events but it just doesn't seem to have even though the 
the organizers are dead keen on it. I, I just don't think that's that's a contender. Um, F1's not short of replacement options because it's got more than enough candidates to comfortably fill out an even longer season. It's also worth remembering that this year was set to be the last Russian Grand Prix at Sochi before moving to the Agora Drive circuit outside St. Petersburg. But we don't know whether Putin's uh, Vladimir Putin's actions will have long-term ramifications for the country's F1 race. Um, F1 president and CEO Stefano Domenicali said last week in an investor's call that there's very big interest in hosting F1 races. And that so that, combined with the previous flexibility the championship showed during the pandemic, means that he thinks it will be easy to sort a replacement race. Um, there'll be no problem planning a calendar without Russia longer term, given China's expected to return to the schedule and the US is in line for a third race in Las Vegas and, and multiple other countries are keen. Um, so unfortunately, I can't see it opening up somewhere like Finland, even though I would absolutely love to see F1 head there. As a country, it's got mega racing heritage. It would be such a break from modern convention of only really adding new tracks in ultra rich places like the Middle East. Um, I think that track is also about 100 kilometers outside Helsinki. Um, so I think it would be in a I think it would be in a beautiful place. Um, the track looks quite cool. Uh, it's got a little bit of a long Zandvoort vibe, actually. Um, Valtteri Bottas has, actually, has also driven a few laps there and said it's got a bit of everything. Some elevation changes and a mix of different corners. Uh, but Bot- even Bottas, with his um, national propaganda, admitted last year that the infrastructure didn't seem quite ready to host F1. So I'd be surprised if that was a short-term or even medium-term prospect. Um, It hasn't even hosted MotoGP yet, I don't think. I think it's on the calendar this year, having had a couple of delays. Um, I could be wrong on that, though. Um, So, yeah, it would basically, I think for... I don't think it was a serious suggestion, but I think to have that race in Finland, it would probably depend on F1 thinking it could cash in in the same way that it has with Zandvoort and Max Verstappen's popularity. So maybe if Bottas pulls his finger out, wins a few races for Alfa Romeo and looks like a championship contender, it'll change. But unless that happens, I don't think we'll be heading to Finland anytime soon. I think if Valtteri Bottas wins a race anytime soon in Alfa Romeo, certainly on merit, I'll probably pay for that race myself. So uh, I don't think that one's going to be <laughs> happening, not through any fault of Valtteri Bottas's own. The ones you mentioned are the realistic choices and Finland would be great. But I quite like the idea of Malaysia because I'd like to go back to Sepang. Fits in very well with Singapore. Where would you like to go if you had the choice, Mark? Um, yeah, that that you, you you stole mine. That's what I was going to say. I, yeah, I love going to Sepang. I thought it was a great place. Um, but yeah, I mean, China's very keen to come back as well, isn't it? So um, it could, could come back a year early. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'll go somewhere um, because there's, <laughs> there's so much demand. And, and um, yeah, my, my uh, personal pick would be Sepang, um, but I'd, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't object if we went to Portugal. I like it there too. Yeah, see if they can get a few uh, a few quid, a few dollars out of somebody to to run the race there as an alternative although obviously the whole Russian Grand Prix thing is a little bit strange because of the phrasing of the uh of the statement that it's it can't take place under current conditions but we do know that race is cancelled and I think the question about the Russian Grand Prix is about the long-term future beyond this year let's see what happens there but we've seen plenty of uh, calendar changes over the past few years so I'm sure F1 is very much ready for that the final question Mark comes from Johan R slash the gubbist apparently is there any chance of f1 cars being small and light again none um not not so long as we have hybrid power units also the 
the size has made them safer as well, e- easier to meet tougher crash test requirements. So there'd be no acceptance of going backwards in terms of crashworthiness. I'd love to have seen a small screamer of an engine, like a three-cylinder turbo one litre with 700 horsepower, which would have sounded fantastic, would have been really spectacular and would have needed even less fuel than the current hybrids. Maybe a bit of curves from the rear axle and a small battery. Um, that's what I... It, it, Something like that was mooted by Pat Simmons, and I, I I really got behind that idea. But then then the cars could have been built small around that. But the FIA wants to encourage buy-in from the automotive manufacturers, and a high revving motor just isn't a direction that's relevant to them because of emissions. So even a even though a, a small super high revving motor could use less fuel, um, the the direction of the R and D of how to maximise combustion at super high engine speeds would be irrelevant to anything else. So sadly, big and brutal and relatively low revving is is of the time. Um, that can have its appeal too, but yeah, I, I do miss the little lightweight things of the V8 era and before. Yeah, it's the minimum weight this year is up at 795 kilos and teams are struggling to hit that already. It's going to go up one kilogram next year as well. That's already in the rules. So it's just going one way, isn't it? And it, it's difficult the drivers keep mentioning the weight and saying they want the, the cars lighter. That's kind of a GPDA policy to keep raising the question of weight, if nothing else, to stop it growing anymore because they've they've gained a lot of weight over recent years. But, yeah, I agree with you, but I can't really see a way for it to go backwards unless there's some fundamental change because so much of it does come from the, the question of, of, of safety and you just need a certain amount of stuff and space and weight and it all just adds up to uh, to this. So yeah, unfortunately, it's just the uh, just the way it is. Although we have to say, this year's cars do look quick. Scott, you've had a bit of a look at how quick this year's cars actually do look compared to the old ones. What what's your your verdict on that in terms of the the pace loss compared to last year, based on what we saw in Barcelona? Um, I think once the teams get everything sorted out and optimized and tailor them for performance, so qualifying basically I don't think they're going to be any slower than last year I think it will vary track to track just because these cars generate the lap time in slightly different ways they're I think they're slightly faster down the straights as fast or slightly faster through the fast stuff slower through the slow stuff so a a track that's all slow corners I think these these would be slower overall but a sort of medium high speed track I, I think they might be as they might be as fast um I think we're I think the first week of testing was 2.4 seconds slower than qualifying in Spain last year. And you and I had a conversation about this, Ed, and said that qualifying in Spain last year is a good reference point because it's a nice fixed point and all the other variables like fuel loads, engine modes, that kind of thing are eliminated. So we know that that's like a effectively an absolute zero point, which is quite handy. And in previous years, pre-season testing to the Grand Prix has yielded a gain of about two seconds. And we're expecting development to be particularly steep in this new rule set. So we're 2.4 seconds off. Generally, the teams are two seconds slower at the first test than they are at the Grand Prix. So we're pretty much already there. And I think, uh, didn't Pirelli boss Mario Isola say that when they were doing their development work on the... um, on the tyres last year, they had simulations from the teams with expected downforce levels to help them with their off-track development. And those simulations for the team were about end of 2022 downforce predictions. And Isola says that we're seeing that performance already. So 
I, I think they are more performant and faster than anybody expected them to be at this stage already. Yeah, and that's despite the fact they're so much heavier as well. That's just the way Formula One is, isn't it? Constant progress. The cars get quicker, even if the rules seem to be making them slower. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. And thanks very much to members of the Race Members Club for all of your questions. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there about all the latest in Formula One, both on and off track. Do check out our sister podcasts, including our IndyCar podcast and also Bring Back V10s. And if video's your thing, head to our YouTube channel. We'll be turning our attention soon to the second pre-season Formula One test in Bahrain, but there's also plenty going on in terms of the Haas situation, the driver situation there to keep an eye on. So stay with us and we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. (laughs) 